You're listening to The Review, first broadcast on the 28th of September 2013 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Review, your weekly preview and indeed review of the arts here on Monocle 24, coming to you from Studio One at Midori House with me, Andrew Muller and Gillian DeBias. Coming up on today's programme, we'll be assessing some new releases on the big screen, from Woody Allen to The Wicker Man, with film critic Alex Godfrey. Anxiety, nightmares and a nervous breakdown. There's only so many traumas a person can withstand till they take to the streets and start screaming. More on Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine later. We'll also be taking an all-too-rare venture down to Nashville as we find out how important the Americana music scene is becoming. That's on this week's Music Review. And as autumn falls across the US, we take a look at some of the new TV series coming out soon with Peter White from Broadcast Magazine. I think your digestive system has seen worse than ice. Excuse me? I've watched you lick cocaine crumbs out of a shag carpet. It's not a sin to be thrifty, dear. (laughs) A clip there from Mom, which is American for Mum, one of the shows we'll be delving into. Plus, we'll have a bit of advice for the weekend in Montreal, so plenty coming up over the next hour here on The Review on Monocle 24. Indeed. Hello and welcome to Studio One at Midori House here in London. You're listening to The Review with me, Andrew Muller and Gillian DeBias on Monocle 24. Gillian, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I haven't been in studio with you since you've been back from Australia. Uh, Australia and Albania, in fact. Of course, yeah. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to read your Albania article in the next issue. It is, the next issue of Monocle magazine. Um, however, though, I think uh, this coming week for the radio, I'm quite excited about two guests we have coming in. Well, I'm excited because, you know, you're sort of our, our music expert, but I love it that you're now getting much more involved in actually booking the guests for our live Midori House sessions. Well, the thing is because I'm so often here during the evenings doing shows, it's the only way I can get to see people I like uh, when they're <laughs> touring. I have to actually bring them in. Um, but on Monday afternoon, we have uh, uh, Slade Cleves from Austin, Texas, coming in to record a Midori House session for The Culture Show. And on Wednesday afternoon, uh, Laura Cantrell, who's one of my favourite singers in the entire world ever, is coming in on Wednesday. To and record. I love it. It's, they, they just literally come. We clear away the tables and benches in our lunchroom and we're lucky enough in between our work to be able to sit in here like four live. It uh, is it is amazing that the, the, you, you get these people just come and play in the cafeteria. I still don't think I'm ever going to see anything quite as strange as Steve Earle playing in our cafeteria, though, which we did actually get to happen in February. Yeah, well, and Josh Stone in bare feet, just you know. Indeed, two two sessions. Two sessions. I do recommend anybody listening dig out uh, on iTunes or on our website on Timeshift, which is I think monocle.com forward slash twenty four. Not now, however. (laughs) Obviously, you are listening to the review on Monocle twenty (laughs) four. And let's start today's shows off with a trip to the movies with summer over big block. Buster releases are giving way to more narrative-driven features, from the comic to the tragic to attention-grabbing alternatives in hope of -of word-of-mouth success. And today we sample Woody Allen's latest angst-ridden offering. Angst-ridden, radical change of direction for him there, Blue (laughs) Jasmine. The director's cut of the cult classic The Wicker Man and a trippy adaptation of Irvine Welsh's Making Bad Novel, Filth. And here to give us his take on this Motley 3, we welcome back film critic Alex Godfrey. Alex, hello. Hello, everybody. Um, First of all, we should talk about Blue Jasmine. Um, even among Woody Allen aficionados, and I should state for the record that I'm very much not one of those, it has been generally accepted that his his form of late has been somewhat erratic. I mean, I know actual Woody Allen fans uh, who hated that film about tennis with Scarlett Johansson in it actually even more than I did. Mm, I, well, his form since the late 80s has been somewhat erratic. That's a long time to be erratic. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think if you're that prolific, then you're allowed to be erratic. He's, he's made a film a year without fail since 82. I mean, you're, sometimes there's going to be good ones, sometimes there's going to be bad ones. I think it's a, a, good, a good way to go. Pe- people are calling Blue Jasmine a return to form, which certainly in the realm, realm of music is one of those dread phrases. Yeah. It's just like the, fa- like the way that every Prince album since about 1990 has been a return to form. And they have, they have of course, all been entirely dreadful. Yeah. Is, is this a return to form of that sort or is it an actual return to form? I think return to form is a, is a strange phrase to use for this film. I think what they're saying is it's a good film and people are so happy because Woody Allen fans love him so much and every time they want him to make a great film and invariably they're not, sometimes they're okay. This is just, I think, a great film regardless of the fact that it's Woody Allen. 
and uh, people are happy about it. Should we hear a clip and then talk let's, a little better? Let's do exactly that. Oh. <laughs> no, I have never been to San Francisco. I'll be staying with my sister. Jasmine! Oh my god. Look at you. <laughs> Your place is homey. Oh, the flight was bumpy. The food was awful. I mean, you'd think first class. I, I thought you were tapped out. I'm dead broke. Really, I mean, the government took everything. All I can say is you look great. Oh, uh, now who's lying? <laughs> When your sister had all that money, she wanted nothing to do with you. Now that she's broke, all of a sudden she's moving in. She's not just broke, she's all screwed up. Anxiety, nightmares, and a nervous breakdown. There's only so many traumas a person can withstand till they take to the streets and start screaming. From Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen's new one, and here to discuss that with us is uh, Alex Godfrey. What did you think of it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, immensely. I can't wait to see it again. I think it's a really, really good film. Um, it's, in some ways, it's typical Woody Allen. In some ways, it's not. I think if you didn't know who he was, you could enjoy it. Um, I don't think it has his obvious rhythms, but it has a lot of his, a lot of his recurring themes. But it's all about Kate Blanchett, really. She is absolutely phenomenal in it. I'm sure she'll get Oscar nominated. She could win. She is. It's such a nuanced, brilliant performance. You look like you disagree. No, no, I totally agree. I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a desperate Woody Allen fan, but sitting in that, I could not take my eyes off her. I kept on listening to everything she was saying and how she was saying it. And like you, I could see it again almost right after just to see her. I thought she was phenomenal. Absolutely yeah. phenomenal. She just disintegrates before your eyes. I think it's just a And that, that scene where she's with the two kids, she's babysitting yeah. these two kids and they're just looking at her straight to the camera, uh, at her, and she's just giving them advice but falling apart in the process. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. It's a great performance of someone who's mentally unsound and isn't getting any better. And he, you know, he, he gives her character a lot. She has a rough old time of it in this film, but uh, it's kind of beautiful to watch. Is it a great film as well as a great performance, though? Kate Blanchett is, of course, fabulous in most things. Yeah, although she's particularly fabulous in this. I th um, whether it's a great film or not, I think we'll have to wait and see. I certainly loved it. I mean, I think Woody Allen fans like myself come in with so much nostalgia and baggage for it that maybe it seems better than it is. I don't know. I did think it was very, very good. And um, it's a great story. And the whole cast are great. He's got Andrew Dice Clay in it, who no one's really seen since he was doing stand-up uh, uh, in the uh, 80s. Astounded to learn that he's still alive. Well, yeah. I mean, who knew? Who knows where he's been, what he's been doing, and what's great in it, I think, is that he doesn't riff on what he used to be or what he used to do. He just acts in it. He's very straight in it, and he's really, really great in it. And I don't know who else but Woody Allen, or maybe Tarantino, would say, I'm going to get that guy and get him to just do something in this. And he's, you know. I find sometimes with Woody Allen, you get ir I, I get irritated by the cliches. And here there were stereotypes, whether they were lower class stereotypes mm -hmm. or the kind of um, Upper East Side stereotypes. But I thought the writing was so clever and the acting was so well done that they actually worked those those stereotypes. Yeah, because I think it's all held together with, with, with the, the passion in there. I think there are working class stereotypes in there, you know, then there's, there's mechanics and, and supermarket girls and some of that, some of the comedy is broader than the other. I mean, some of it's subtle and some of it is almost farcical, but sometimes it hangs together because you sort of you're on everyone's side. Mm. Well, we should move along then to a film which is great and everybody knows it's great, but this is a new version thereof. This is The, the Wicker Man. Before we get into that, we have a clip of uh, Robin Hardy, the film's director, who was uh, in this very studio just yesterday speaking to Robert Bound for Monday's Culture Show, and here's what Robin Hardy had to say. The whole film up until the point that they meet on the cliffs before you see The Wicker Man is, I think, a successful attempt to lull the audience into a sense of insecurity in this nice, unusually warm for Scotland community that have gone back to living a very unpuritan existence, which we believe the Celtic world was, and that we be made to laugh and we be made to be touched by the songs in some cases. And then suddenly, wham, it's a horror. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. I am here to investigate the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. If she existed, we would know. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. Sergeant, if I were you, I would go back to the mainland. You wouldn't want to be around here on Navy. Pagan! 
Where is Rowan Morrison? Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. From the Wicker Man or the new director's cut thereof, what do, what do we learn or what does the new cut add to the Wicker Man? Not a whole lot. I mean, I, they're calling it a director's cut. They've put some old scenes in, which I think fans have, would have seen before. Uh, there was some sort of campaign by the distrib- distribution company over the past year or so calling out for people to help find missing bits of the film. Uh, and did you, they? No. I, it was very str- I mean, I was getting emails. If you know where any parts of the film are, please let us know. Well, I don't know what they expected people to do or how they wanted them to do it. I'll, I'll just nip upstairs and take a look in the attic. You yeah. never know. Exactly. But um, th- they've put in two or three scenes that people have seen before. I think it was from an old American cut. But um, you don't learn much more. It's kind of more of the same. Uh, Christopher Lee as Lord Summerall comes in a bit earlier. Um I, it doesn't detract from it, but I'm not sure that the film benefits from it particularly. It was just great, for, to be honest, for me to go and see it on a big screen again. It still absolutely stands up. It's fantastic. So who's the audience? Is it mostly people who were fans of the original film or is it people who... When I went, yeah. film critics, it no, was a press <laughs> No, but who's it going to appeal to? Is it going to be people... I mean, I was I just d- looking at the trailer and I love all that retro 70s styling and fashion. <laughs> it would be great if a new audience would go to the cinema and see this. I mean, I think they've got a job on their hands. I don't know if they've got much in the way of a marketing budget. I don't know how they would do that. I mean, it's a, it is a classic film. It still absolutely stands up. It's better than a lot of new stuff out there. And I would like people to go and see it. I mean, anyone could see it. It's just a great film. Do you think that is the the appeal of this alleged de- director's cut, or at least the attraction of doing it, the idea that it is just an excuse to put this film on in a cinema on a big screen? I think certainly that's the best thing to have come out of it. I mean, I don't know what they do. Like I say, I think they were looking for more than they got. And from what I know from real... I've only seen it a couple of times, but from what, from what I know from real aficionados, it's nothing new in there. And I didn't, I didn't think the scenes made it any better. And, it, you know, it, directors... Anyone calls anything a director's cut these days if they stick, if they stick bits in it. I don't know. Again, coming, coming more from the world of music, it's one of those phrases that's always made me a bit suspicious. The musical equivalent is, is, is remastered. Yeah. It's, I, I, have no, I, I have never met anybody who can explain to me what that actually means. Yeah, it means we're selling it again. Exactly. But sometimes not giving the director the final cut is not always a bad idea. I mean, I think some of the problems with films is that, you know, the directors just need a good producer and they need someone to pull stuff out. Well, and they just never fit. You know, Oliver Stone is about to release his fourth version of Alexander and the second (laughs) one was called The Director's Cut. The third one was called The Final Cut. I don't know what what he's calling this one, but he's saying, I promise this is it. The remastered cut. The remastered final director's (laughs) cut, I promise. The final director's cut, obviously. Um, The film itself, The Wicker Man, it's it's 40 years old, and yet it does does have this this resonance and, and, and this power. What do you think it is about the film? I just think great storytelling, great performances, and it's really, really eerie. I was watching, I was thinking, this is proper evil on screen here. It's really horrible, and, you know, the terror... And confusion in Edward Woodward's eyes. You can't really get over it. It really sticks with It's quite you. surreal, no? It is surreal. I mean, it's bonkers. And in the extra scenes, there is more surrealism. There are more, there's more pagan weirdness. There's, there's uh, garden orgies. There's, <laughs> there's just more oddness. <laughs> Um, moving along then to uh, your your third and final uh, selection this week. This is a this is a a new film of a book that's been kicking around for a while. This is John S. Baird's uh, cinematic adaptation of Irvine Welsh's novel Filth, and we have a clip from that now. Scotland was such a uniquely successful race. This nation brought the world television, whiskey, and of course me. Detective Sergeant Bruce Robertson. I used to be a good person. You're gonna hit me, Bruce! I think there's something seriously wrong with me. Have you been to see a doctor? What made you join the force, Bruce? Police oppression, brother. And you wanted to stamp it out from the inside? No, I wanted to be a part of it. Okay, even that trailer's given me a headache. That is a, a clip from Filth, John S. Baird's adaptation of Irvine Welsh's novel of the same name. It sounds a fairly obvious bid to rebottle the the train spotting genie, as it were. That yeah. metaphor doesn't stand up on a number of levels. <laughs> I apologise. As it was coming out of my mouth, it was just no. That's that's going nowhere at all. But I think you know what I'm saying. Is 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 it up there with train spotting? No. 
<laughs> Do feel free to elaborate. <laughs> well, that's it. Everyone wants it to be. Yeah. People are saying it is. And Irving Welsh is saying, oh, people won't didn't know what one is better. And I, I am in a very, very small minority at the moment. I don't know, because people haven't seen it yet. I just know what other film critics have, have been saying. And people are loving it, loving it, loving it. Um, I couldn't stand it. I'm not. Maybe I was in the wrong mood. I don't know. But for me, there wasn't a shred of humanity in it or anything relatable or anything to really grab onto. It's a very naughty film that revels in the fact that it's very naughty. For me, it was like skins for slightly older people, very slightly. When when the book came out, I think, you know, people were saying, oh, this book is, you know, it, it... it can't be taken to the screen. It's unfilmable. Yeah, well, they and say maybe, that about everything. And but true. maybe it should not have been filmed. Well, I don't know. I don't think maybe it shouldn't have been filmed like this. I don't know. It's mm. a strange. There's a lot of talent in it. James McAvoy is electric. It's fantastic in it. He's really, There's a lot of energy in it. But, you know, I mean, even the trailer looks like it's trying to do another Clockwork Orange. It's a sexy, depraved, mm. awful, outrageous event. So you can't really call your own film that. But um, I don't know. I just think it was a horrible thing with horrible people doing horrible things. Yeah. Uh, that's you know. that's often the tricky bit, though. You mentioned the fact that, yeah, the horrible people thing, and that can make a film or indeed anything very difficult to latch onto. But I thought that that was one of the successes of Trainspotting, the novel as well as the film, that though the protagonists were clearly fairly dreadful people, they were also quite sympathetic. You ended up weirdly rooting for them. Yeah, well, they felt like humans. And I've got nothing wrong with unsympathetic characters. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they have to be likable for the film to be likable. But there's just it didn't feel real to me. And that Kate Blanchett's character in Blue Jasmine is very shallow. Uh, she's snooty, she's snotty, she's snobby, but she feels so real and you care so much what's happening to her. In this one, you just think, I don't believe any of these people actually exist. Alex Godfrey, thank you so much for joining us here again on The Review with those wrap-ups of The Wicker Man, Filth and Blue Jasmine. We're going to take a short break now and when we're back, we'll have our weekly roundup of the world's best cultural offerings. You're listening to Monocle 24. Culture on Monocle 24 is untouchable. Go on, just try and do it. Try and grab a handful of the top-grade cultural radio that we're dishing out and see if you can touch it. Well, exactly. Luckily, though, you can feel it. Feel the passion of the unusually button-bright presentation. It's a fantastic contrast, and it's one of those ones that ask you to look at the brushwork, to look just at the canvas. Feel the craftsmanship in the breathtaking live Midori House sessions. You know, I consider myself an entertainer, so I'm really about communication. I'm not really about expressing myself so much as trying to communicate with people and bring them to tears or bring them to laughter or what have you. Feel the lovingly hand-stitched production and, most of all, feel the love of art. It's there and it's true, but it's really only a small part of his work. Feel the love of fiction. Feel the love of film. Feel the love of music. Feel the love, generally. It is the most extraordinary collation of works that you would never normally see together. Why not invite me round? Culture with Robert Bound is a well-behaved house guest and a joy to entertain. That's Culture with Robert Bound, premiering every Monday at 1900 hours UK time, right here on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Review here on Monocle 24 with me, Gillian Tobias and Andrew Muller. In a moment, we're off to Nashville. But first, we cross to Toronto to hear from our Bureau Chief, Nelly Gotcheva. Here are her picks for the weekend from around the world. This weekend, Tokyo welcomes the largest photography fair in Asia, Tokyo Photo. On show are the latest digital pieces and vintage prints from about 25 galleries from 11 cities across the world. We recommend a special exhibition entitled Pictures from Moving Cars, curated by Simon Baker at Tate Modern. It features works by Daido Moriyama, Joel Meirovitz and John Divola. Tokyo Photo runs until Monday. For more details go to tokyophoto.org. If in London, head down to the Mall Galleries near Trafalgar Square for the Treadneedle Prize exhibition. Now, in its sixth year, the Treadneedle Prize is a platform for emerging artists. One of this year's winners is Claire McCormack from Liverpool. Her art, along with more than a hundred other paintings, sculptures and installations from 95 rising talents, is on display until the 12th of October. 
In Milan, American artist James Crone presents his first solo exhibition in brand new gallery. Entitled Water Home, We is Somebody Else, the show features large-scale canvas in monochromes. Water Home, We is Somebody Else is on until the 9th of November. In Hong Kong, the Pearl Lamb Galleries welcome American artist Jenny Holzer and her solo exhibition, Lightstream. It features large-scale LED installations projecting texts which explore the themes of transparency, sexuality and power. The show is on until the 2nd of November. For more details, go to pearlam.com. This weekend we are listening to the Step Kids with their latest album, Troubadour. The Step Kids are about to kick off their European tour. For more details, go to thestepkidsband.com. And now let's hear them with Moving Pictures. From Monocle in Toronto, I'm Nelly Gocheva. That was the Step Kids with moving pictures, ending that their report there by Nelly Gacheva. And it's time now for our weekly music review. And today we're visiting Nashville. Nashville is, of course, synonymous with country music. But in recent years, especially, it has become synonymous with a certain sort of country music. Slick, commercial, produced and generally performed by people wearing unnecessarily hefty hats. The Americana Music Association is a trade organisation which loosely represents an alternative to this and they staged their annual festival and industry conference in Nashville last week. Crispin Perry, founder of British Underground, a company that promotes British music around the world, was at the festival and joins us now to explain how significant this side of the music industry is becoming. Welcome, Crispin. Good afternoon. First of all, I'm curious because you're from, uh, you have an organisation, British Underground, and you're promoting British music at the Americana Festival. How does that work? Well, they asked us to come along, actually. We, um, I do promote British music in all sorts of genres, so folk, um, next week, I'm going over to an event in Atlanta called A3C, which is a hip-hop event. We've got a British show there. So um, I met up at one of the folk um, conventions in America with the guys who, who run this event, and they asked us to bring some British music along. So uh, they selected the acts. I found the funding for those acts, and then I put on an additional show in the spirit of the event called The Bootleg Barbecue and invited mm -hmm. two uh, fantastic sort of rising stars from the scene to play on that show to bring a little extra edge to the show. And how accommodating is Nashville to people from not just different parts of the United States, but different parts of the world making Nashville variety music? Well, this this particular event, you'll find the Australians there, you'll find the Canadians there. That's a very natural home. But songwriters like, I mean, Ed Sheeran is a big part of the story now in Nashville. He's writing with Taylor Swift. There's a lot of young English writers actually doing, I mean, obviously it's a centre of songwriting for the American music industry. Those guys are writing there. Strangely, the Americana, one of the, the bands that they champion through their particular sort of scene and genre and through this festival is Mumford and & Sons. And since they've been successful in America, the sales of banjos have shot through the roof. So they would consider Mumford & Sons, although we might not hear, they would say that's a very central to the Americana sound and the Americana story. And um, does is there the same sense of discovery this of this national event as, say, something like South by Southwest? Very interesting. I mean, South by Southwest is an event I've been involved with for over a dozen years. And when I first went there, there were very few British people there. There were very few shows we put on. I think the first British show was Elbow and, and a band called Oxide and Neutrino. A few people turned up there, very influential people, and that, that then grow, grew. And I think now we have 150 UK acts in South by Southwest. I'm now going to Nashville 
with this show, with a few delegates, with a few uh, bands that we're taking with us. It's like the original South by Southwest days. So it's a great place to go. And I'm finding a lot more. These events are so much more welcoming to us now. Uh, South by Southwest is a huge festival now, one of the biggest in the world, whereas these boutique events that are genre specific are so much more helpful for what we need to do. How much of a sense do you get from this event of the other side of the tracks, as it were, in Nashville? Because as well as the, the country music establishment in Nashville, there's also a sort of semi-permanent rebel camp largely based in East Nashville um, of alternative country singers. Are they represented at the Americana Festival? Well, th- that's what it's about, really. It is about those guys. I mean, I think you obviously have the Country Music Awards that celebrates the Toby Keiths and the Taylor Swifts. The Americanas, particularly, it starts with an award show in the Ryman Auditorium, the sort of home of country and the home, the sort of Nashville centre of Nashville music. Um, and it celebrates people like Emmy Lou Harris played on that show at that award ceremony. And then they'll bring in the sort of Dr. Johns, Dan Auerbach played with him. So there's quite an interesting, Americanas are very broad, whereas country music these days, hat music, whatever you want to call that style, it's Toby Keith and Taylor Swift and Ke- uh, Kenny Chesney. It's a huge industry with a lot. We, Taylor Swift played, was in town when we were there with, with about a dozen enormous trucks all parked around that main uh, venue there. Quite extraordinary to see that. And then we had our little Americana thing that was along along beside it. We should also mention that at this festival there were several past and indeed future Midori House guests. uh, Caitlin Rose, Paul Kelly, Emily Barker, Laura Cantrell, who's coming here, as we mentioned, to play on Wednesday for The Culture Show. Um, You picked out a few artists who especially impressed you, and we should hear from them now. Um, First up, the Milk Carton Kids. Introduce them, if you would. Um, these guys were a nominee for new artist at the Americana Awards. They're, I was actually blown away by their live show. They do a song but prior to the awards being announced. Uh, um, and these guys are a sort of modern-day Simon and Garfunkel. I think they're from an L- L.A. and the song is called Honey, Honey. Virgie takes a lover and bass got only knows. Sister, won't your sister please let your sister go? the Milk Carton Kids with Honey Honey. It's the first choice of this week's music reviewer Crispin Parry from British Underground. Um, you mentioned Simon and Garfunkel there who were, are an obvious point of comparison. There's a, there's a whiff of the Leuven Brothers about that as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's very impressive about, about that act, I mean, it's quite, although it sounds so simple, it's quite difficult to pull off that kind of sound. And the guy, there's two of them, uh, they stand very close, might around two uh, ancient-looking kind of microphones, but the, the, the guy can play guitar... It, extraordinary that's the thing you really notice when you're watching him live it is it is quite a, a rootsy and quite an impressive performance so what will happen to them now how does the music business work these days you know they have this showcase uh, the music industry is so competitive how do they not just disappear well they will already be at i mean to be nominated for mm. that award they they already need to be at a level so they're going to do all the big tv shows over in the states the big chat shows and things um, their their next move will be to I guess I mean what I'm trying to do here is introduce the sound that is happening in Nashville right now. These guys will be coming over here soon, so the next thing will be a tour of Europe, and they'll no doubt drop into London. I mean I expect a, a Bush Hall show or something like that would be the thing to see these guys at. No, they're really interesting. There is a, a splitting there of the difference between that sort of New York folk style of Simon and Garfunkel and proper old school gothic country. They sound like they are on the verge of singing a song about burying somebody under a sycamore tree. No doubt they will do that. Excellent. Something to look forward to. Um, Your second choice, uh, Sturgill Simpson with Railroad of Sin. Sturgill Simpson is? Uh, My new hero. (laughs) (laughs) He is your classic sort of Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings type of character. I guess he's in his early 30s. He used to work on the railroad. Incredibly charismatic. I mean, I I was lucky enough to sort of go out for a a drink with him after we'd done our show. He played our show. I mean, he was one of the American guests there. And he, you know, absolutely amazing. A real, real interesting character. Very, very much uh, about the old idea of real country. That's what he's into. And with the hippest looking, coolest, young Kings of Leon style band with him. So he is an amazing guy. Except he has also recorded as well, hasn't he, with some of Nashville's real elder statesmen? I believe so. I think on, on the record that this comes from, they are on that record as well. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, let's hear a bit of that. This is Sturgill Simpson with Railroad of Sin. Well, don't make a sound. But I got the
Sturgill Sampson, Railroad of Sin, the second selection of our music reviewer, Crispin Parry from British Underground. That has that whole early 70s outlaw country written all over it, doesn't it? That's pure Johnny Paycheck, Tom Paul Glazer, Waylon Jennings. And that's what he et is. Cetera. He is that guy, and I think it's really interesting. And, and your East Nashville scene is embracing him as well. I mean, there are a lot of venues uh, in Nashville that are bringing up this new generation, one's called The Basement, over... Um, under, uh, underneath the Grimey's record store and he, he's been sort of groomed and, and come out of that of that sort of scene which is the left field alternative sort of East Nashville scene. But is, is, is it hard for him to, I guess, break out of that? Because he, do, he does fall between those two things. On the one hand, that is very, very orthodox country music. It's not, it isn't a million miles away from a Toby Keith record in many respects, but it's also very identifiable as part of the alternative country thing. I think, you know... It, if if he finds his moment, that can cross over. I think that he's the kind of person that uh, the alternative... I mean, if, if you think about him in terms of the UK, there would be many people in East and South London who would find something to appreciate in this guy, not least his clothes, his attitude, the way he is. He is completely new to a lot of people. So I think... I mean, and East Nashville is a very, very cool place to be right now. There's a lot of dialogue going on between South London, East London and East Nashville. So somebody like him could well break into that and, and, and completely change. I mean, I think country music and Americana, there's a moment here. It could well go into becoming something quite hip all of a sudden. It seems that uh, listening to that, that the, seeing him live performing would be the beauty of that. Very cool guy. Yeah, I mean, he, it is It is a, all of this. Um, it's worth remembering as well that... that the uh, the level of musicianship of, and of all of the bands that I saw throughout that thing is so extraordinary. They are such good musicians. So you bank that, and then it's what else you offer. That's what makes these 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 acts really work. It is one of the joys of visiting Nashville. In fact, just to go down to the station in on any given night when all the people who usually play sessions are just there playing for the hell of it, and yeah. it, it does remind you uh, what extraordinary virtuosos actually make these records. Uh, your final selection. Um, today. Well, she kind of needs no introduction. She has the most famous surname uh, in all of country music. This is Holly Williams, granddaughter of Hank, um, daughter of Hank Jr., half-brother to Hank III. Well, I mean, this is very interesting. I mean, she, she again played the show that we had our our, our uh, sort of four UK acts and Sturgill and Holly played on that show. So she brought her crowd down to see our our, our English groups and and Actually, I found her a very charming and a very genuine person. She was able in her dialogue with the audience to talk about her family without sounding too uh, sentimental. It was, very, it, was a, it was a great sort of introduction to every song. And, and her, I, I, you know, in the audience, I think because obviously she's in Nashville, she's, in, she's got her Nashville crowd. When she sang some of these songs, people were genuinely crying in the audience. It was quite an interesting place and a, and a, and a, and a great show to see, actually. It must be such a strange thing to carry around, though, that, that name in that context. And it's Hank Williams seems like this mythological creature from another age, but it only would have been his 90th birthday last week, I believe. He's well, ten, she, ten she years older that. than Willie Nelson. She mentioned that in, in her introductions to some of her songs. I, th- I think... Um, I found her, she can easily stand up around. She'll be over in the, I think she's been to the UK before, but she will be over here. There's new record out. There, There's a lot of uh, talk of her becoming quite a, uh, a big star in Nashville now. So she'll be over here. And I think she stands up on her own. I think the songs are great. Um, it's a little bit more traditional Nashville than some of the other stuff that we've heard. But um, she's, a, she's a great star and a really good performer. Okay, well, this is Holly Williams with the very country-titled song, Drinkin'. Drinking like the night is young Mama took the kids and the money's all gone So why am I drinking like the night is young Hope we don't die drinking like the night is young Holly Williams with drinking the third selection of our musical reviewer this week, Crispin Parry from British Underground. It's amazing, uh, or at least to me, how the Williams genes have endured because she sounds as much like a female Hank Williams as you could possibly imagine anyone sounding. And her half-brother, Hank, Hank Williams III, is the most eerie dead ringer visually for his grandfather. And like I said, it just must be such... It, it, I mean, it, it is it is it is being country music royalty. It must be a very odd burden. I think that in Nashville, I heard um, that. Uh, I mean, obviously, got a, Nashville's a very interesting place. They don't treat stars like celebrities there. They're just part of the uh, the, of the natural 
um, way of things. And people like uh, Jack White have moved down there because it's easy for him to go into a bar and have a drink or go into a restaurant. Likewise, Kings of Leon can, can go into a local restaurant without being hassled. I think those those bigger names are in that town and, and can grow up there without feeling the weight of that, the burden of their of their celebrity or their genes or, or whatever it might be. And uh, I saw uh, Lisa Marie Presley play whilst I was part of, uh, at this event. On the subject uh, of burdensome surnames. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that's a completely different story and probably another show, I'd say. Crispin Parry from British Underground, thank you very much as ever for joining us here on The Review. Uh, you're listening to Monocle 24. Well, from Nashville now, we cross to Montreal. Reporter Patrick Pittman is in the city and is here to tell us what's on offer there this weekend. It's the time of year when Montreal's more offbeat festivals take centre stage. Pop Montreal is in full swing right now, and the city's bars and stages will be full of incredible concerts all weekend from the likes of Kid Koala, Clap Your Hands Say Yeah, and the legendary Shuggy Otis, alongside the cream of the Canadian underground. Hello, my love. I heard from you. $10 on top of a gig ticket gets you entry into every show on the day. Don't miss the overflowing crates at the epic Pop Montreal Record Fair, on all weekend at the Ukrainian Federation. Montreal is well known for its jazz festival, but its upstart young cousin, Lof Jazz, has been showing off a more daring side of the local scene for the last 15 years. Lof is an artist-run festival that embraces the avant-garde, and this year features a choice of 27 concerts from October 3 across La Sala Rosa, Casa del Popolo and Resonance Café. The opening night features the launch of saxophonist Christine Jensen's new album Habitat, with backing from some of the city's most progressive jazz hands. The 42nd Montreal Festival de Nouveau Cinema kicks off on the 9th of October. The programme was just announced this week, with advanced ticket sales commencing on October 5. As ever, it's a wild and eclectic lineup, including the North American premiere of cult legend Alejandro Jodorowsky's first film in 23 years, The Dance of Reality. Algo nos está soñando. Entrega de la ilusión. Vive. And on closing night, Cryptic. Robert Lepage's adaptation of his infamously epic nine-hour play lip-sync. Don't worry though, the film's only 90 minutes. Across Montreal and all of Quebec this weekend, artists, galleries and cultural organisations are throwing open their doors, as they have done at this time every year since 1997. There are over 3,000 free conferences, guided tours, hands-on workshops and other opportunities to experience the province's creative culture in full effect at Les Journées de la Culture. For Monocle, in Montreal, I'm Patrick Pittman. And this is The Review on Monocle 24. We'll be back to assess the fall season on US television after this short break. Are you tired of overcooked and overrated culinary trends that never quite hit the spot? Fed up of being spoon-fed half-baked ideas on the next big thing? Then tune into the menu with me, Marcus Hippi. Every week we introduce you to the world's top makers and shakers, cocktail creators and the best bread makers as we uncover gourmet street food, big-time baristas and wily wineries. Once upon a time, it was seen as disdain, but over the years, that culture had gotten so popular, it's iconic now. If you're serving decent food in East London, I don't think you've got any problem getting custom in. And I worked in the West End for years, you know, I mean, it's not always packed in the West End, trust me. This is the show that discovers how coffee can change a country and how chocolate can make us live longer, all in the search for exciting local food producers and the most original entrepreneurs. That's The Menu every Friday at 1900 hours London time. Each Sunday on Monocle 24, we like to take stock. The wonder of history for the journalist is you can delve into this immense booty of information. I don't even know what to think about that. <laughs> take the global pulse. I was at a Bunga Bunga party the other day. And? <laughs> I wasn't at all, I just wanted to start a show like that. We're 187 shows down. How's your week been? I'm feeling 187, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally take things down a notch, too. 
I had a pair of plum suede loafers with gold snaffles. <laughs> the guy stopped his car and leant out of the window and said it was people like me who were bringing this country to its knees. <laughs> to end the week with the best chat. We know that he had them and we know that he used them before. Because we still had the receipts. Well, there's that. Some great music. Do you know, I never <laughs> thought that I might need to have a question about death metal, but I'm, uh, I'm warming up. And some good fun to set up Sunday and warm the week ahead. The Monocle Weekly. Your week starts here. Welcome back. It is Saturday and you're listening to The Review with me, Gillian Tobias and Andrew Muller. Now, for American television networks, the coming of autumn is their cue to unveil the new shows which they hope will dominate the ratings for years to come. And these hopes have become ever more fervent, yet ever more frail, as television, the dominant medium of home entertainment for decades, has had to repel borders from an increasing number of directions. Does anybody indeed still want to watch any television series at all in the way they once did? Well, joining us now to talk us through this season's contenders is Peter White, Senior International Reporter for Broadcast Magazine. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, first of all, how, how big a deal really is the fall season for American networks still? It's huge. It, it, it's uh, you sort of alluded to there that it's slightly becoming smaller because of the the growth of of perhaps other mediums and, and cable TV and, and and the internet and such. But no, I mean it's still it's still the way to uh, to attract a, a mass audience. So these shows are are hugely important for for the networks. It's interesting. Our uh, in our pre-studio chat with our film reviewer, he just came back from LA and he said all the biggest billboards, the biggest real estate billboards, were not advertising films. They're advertising these series. TV's taken over film. I mean, if you look at what's uh, you know happened in the last couple of years, um, whether it's movie stars moving into TV, whether it's the writers, the directors, the producers, um, TV has sort of taken to the point now where it feels like it's uh, it's bigger than the movie business. And yet, can television still dominate the discourse in the way it once did? Will there ever be, say, if you're talking in terms of launching either drama or comedy, another programme like MASH or even indeed more recently Friends that, mm-hmm. that unites uh, the discourse as those programmes did? Uh, you might not get the same numbers as MASH did or, or the finale of Friends did, but, I mean, I haven't met a person in the last two weeks who hasn't talked about the finale of Breaking Bad. Mm. Um, so you do get these shows, and perhaps, you know, they're not necessarily as the same numbers, but but they are still huge. I mean, you look at the numbers that, that watched Big Bang Theory, um, you know, whether you like that as a show or not, there's 20 million people. That's, that's still enough. big numbers. But a programme like Breaking Bad, I wonder, is that... Is that a repeat of the phenomenon that we saw with The Wire, where it got incredible amounts of press because journalists were obsessed with it, but not actually that many people in the real world were watching? I think people didn't watch it to start with. I think it started very slowly. Um, but I think thanks to, to Netflix and you know illegal downloads and, and, and box sets, um, more people. I mean, you look at the numbers in the States and, and every single week that, that grows and they're getting, you know, they're getting a lot more viewers now. I think it just took a while because it wasn't the most accessible show uh, around. So how competitive is it? Can you give us a sense of like, does this make or break networks? It's, it's mental. It's absolutely mental. You look at NBC because you, you, you talked about shows like Friends. I mean, if you can remember, during the 90s you had these these huge hits on NBC whether it was Friends and Will and Grace and and such and and now NBC is the you know the sort of the, the smaller of the of the four networks um although they're trying to trying to sort of help that and you know they're trying to go through um slightly um broader shows than perhaps they've done in the last few years because they've had things like Parks and Recreation and The Office which have been relatively mm-hmm. niche um shows so for this year for instance I mean their big their big bet is a is a show called The Blacklist, which is um, with James Spader, and it's a very traditional crime drama. But you look at the numbers; it launched uh, it launched last week, and and there's 13 million people watching it. So you know it's uh, it is very very competitive and and yeah people do lose their jobs and, and gain other jobs uh, on the back of some I mean, of these ha- have there been any sort of noteworthy televisual hindenburgs in the last few seasons <laughs> Yes and no. You, it, there's been lots of shows that have, have crashed and burned, but you tend not to, to hear about them. I and mean, it'd be very surprising that if one of the the very uh, big uh, franchises crashed and burned so epically. I mean, they tried to remake Charlie's Angels, and and that you no know, one watched mm. that. But I don't think there's been a, a, such a, a, a an example. I'd have been, for instance, uh, Shield was the big bet this year. This is the the Marvel uh, adaptation of of Avengers. Um, and it's not been as big as I think people had expected it to be, but still, you're looking at, at tens of millions of people watching it. Well, we do, in fact, have a clip of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It goes a bit like this. 
For years, the truth was hidden. People from other times, other worlds, heroes. But now we know. They're among us. What does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for, Agent Ward? Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. And what does that mean to you? I mean, someone really wanted our initials to spell out S.H.I.E.L.D. And that is a very Joss Whedon line right there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Whedon-esque, yeah, very much so. Uh, and it is unsurprisingly Whedon-esque because he did, of course, direct it. Is, is it up there with his best? <laughs> I don't know. It depends what you were expecting from it. It's... Um, uh, personally wasn't a huge fan of it um i thought it felt like a, a subpar version of the movie um and it certainly wasn't up there with with the likes of uh, buffy the vampire Slayer. it looks no. massive budget it looks like they oh, didn't it's film budget it's absolutely ridiculous the amount of money they spent on it um but you won't see uh, you know your iron man's or your uh, avengers <laughs> stars in it so it's kind of it, it is a it is a funny uh, funny one so it'll be interesting to see how it does well staying with i guess the theme of uh I, I think I can say as affectionately and respectfully as possible, high-octane hogwash. Um, <laughs> hostages. Uh, I, 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 I was in, Hostages to me, it looks like one of those things which is, is obviously ridiculous, but I yeah. could imagine myself getting, against my better judgment, quite sucked in by it. Yeah, that's a great description of it because, yeah, high-octane hogwash is, is very apt. It's, um, it's a slightly more ridiculous homeland, which was in itself which quite ridiculous. Which was pretty ridiculous <laughs> to start with. Um, it's, you know, it shares so many similarities with that show the ridiculousness being one it's based on an israeli format which is is the second i mean it's got this ridiculous premise that uh, tony collette plays this surgeon who is about to operate on the on the president of the united states of america and then her family has been taken hostage by a group of sexy kidnappers so yes it's it, it could it could happen <laughs> it could happen it look, it, looking at it you can imagine a, a good movie but it, it it endures for 15 episodes i've only seen the first episode Episode. I've only seen the pilot, which is fun, but yeah, you, the, everyone who came out of the, the pilot screening of that show was like, how on earth yeah. are they going to sustain this? Um, I, I hope they do, because it, it, it was genuinely quite funny. It was pretty pretty silly. But, but how, was... I mean, are, are they giving any thought to sustaining it to a second series? <laughs> is, is he going to have to hold up another surgeon's family hostage in the second yeah, series? They, or They've been very clever with how they've, uh, they've pitched it in the States. In the States, they've called it a limited series, which basically means if it doesn't do very well, we were only going to do one season. But it, all of a sudden, if it if it does very well, we'll figure out who, which who's is, next. Which is what they did with 24. Which is what they did yeah. with 24, which is sort of what they did with Homeland, uh, mm. you know, maybe not officially. Um, we do have a clip of hostages, so help us. <laughs> Ellen! I'll be right out! Ah! I'm not going to repeat myself, so I suggest you all listen very carefully. Do you love your family, Ellen? Oh, yes. Why are you doing this? Tomorrow you're going to operate on the president. He will die. Otherwise... We will kill your family. That is your one-line pitch right there. <laughs> yeah. uh, a clip, a clip there from from hostages, which, like I said, is is sounds obviously idiotic, but I rather suspect it's going to be quite irresistible. Yeah, and and it, it's been you know it's been picked up again by uh, by Channel Four, so we'll get to see it uh, see it over Splendid. here. Um, moving along to well. <laughs> I'm, I'm sighing in advance. I've, I've only seen the trailer, and I suspect that's as much as I'm ever going to see. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know, if, if only somebody would have an idea set in a police station where you have a straight-laced old-school, like, superintendent and a maverick young cop who does it all his own way. It's amazing <laughs> to me that no one's thought of that before now. They tried to remake Beverly Hills Cop last year, and they, they actually uh, got got canned before it made it to air but so this is the the sort of next uh, next version of that i guess it just seems so slapstick i mean the humor just yes yeah. yeah it's but it, then it's uh, you know stars andy sandberg who in the state is a big star because he's on saturday night live so i guess in that respect uh, you know he he is that slapstick character but uh, whether that will uh, will do well uh, around the rest of the world do you I'm think sure. that's something that will do well maybe in north america because a very different kind of sense of humor than it will internationally yeah and and you'll see it in pockets i mean you know a lot of these comedies do relatively well for in, in the uk because you know kids and, and teenagers are sitting watching them on the sofa on e4 and and, and they do quite well i mean they're never going to break 
through the, the, the public consciousness, but, but they do what they're meant to do. Everyone, I'm your new commanding officer, Captain Ray Holt. Speech. That was my speech. This precinct is doing fine, but I want to make it the best one in Brooklyn. Sergeant, you were significantly... Fatter, sir. They called me Terry Titties. I never liked that nickname. Though, to be fair, it was accurate. That's how we do it in the 9-9. Catch bad guys and look good doing it. A clip there from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I kind of feel... I feel like it should have been one of those films starring Adam Sandler, which is the thing you watch about 23 hours into the flight to Australia when you've already watched everything else and you're going out of your mind. Yeah, maybe they couldn't get Adam, so they uh, they went for, for Andy. Um, it's been very well reviewed, though. It has. It's you know. In it, fairness, it, this is the case. It, it's you know, it's it's silly. It knows it's silly. It's uh, it's you know, the the stars are quite good at what they do. I mean, it, it's very much a, a Marmite show, isn't it? You're going to love it or you're going to hate it. Uh, and I suspect the same may be true for another one we need to discuss. This is another comedy which I can't pronounce properly, but Gillian can. You have the advantage of having been brought up on the North American continent. <laughs> All right, where 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 is it, Mar? Mom, yeah, mom, that's it. mom that's just it. mom. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that word properly um, because I would just pronounce it mum. We do have a trailer of this. It sounds like this. Hi, I'm Christy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, the only reason I'm here is because uh, I didn't want to turn into my mother. Aren't you I a little old probably. to be blaming all your problems on your mother? Hi, Mom. <laughs> Oh, Greg, honey, can I trouble you for some water without ice? Ice isn't good for my digestive system. I think your digestive system has seen worse than ice. Excuse me? I've watched you lick cocaine crumbs out of a shag carpet. It's not a sin to be thrifty, dear. Now, that was mom. I can't do it. Um, which was uh, from the, or, or, the created by the uh, the auteur, if we can call him that, Chuck Lorre, previously behind Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men, starring the fantastic Alison Janney. Yeah. Uh, does it work? I, I think it's the first time that Chuck Lorre's ever been called an auteur. But yes, uh, it, it's essentially Two and a Half Women. Uh, Chuck Lorre <laughs> is the guy behind Two and a Half Men, and 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 it's. I really wanted to dislike it. I really don't like those comedies that he does. But when you put Alison Janney from The West Wing in anything, and she's brilliant, um, it is much better than I expected. And Anna Faris is is quite amusing in it. Um, it's a pretty dumb comedy, but it's it's funny. And do you think it's likely to work? It's likely to work in the States, yeah. Um, whether it works over here, the title itself might uh, put a few people off. They, but... they'll, they'll have to rename it. Exactly. They'll well. have to call it Mum uh, or something. <laughs> uh, Peter White, Senior International Reporter for Broadcast Magazine, thank you very much for joining us. And that brings us to the end of today's review. The show was produced by Katie Bilboa and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thanks also to our researcher, Harriet Thorpe, and our studio manager, Chris Grimes. It's goodbye from us here in the studio, but we're crossing back to Georgina next who continues with the weekend edition after the headlines you can catch the curator our pick of the week's best monocle 24 stories guests and features hosted this week by steve blumfield and if you want to hear more about the wicker man next week's culture show with robert bound will feature more of that interview with the director robin hardy and much more besides that's on air at 1900 hours london time on monday for now though you've been listening to the review with me andrew muller and julian debias here on monocle 24 have a good weekend 